material boxes of identity, community, of um, even political opinions, uh, and, and really come together so we can make a collective impact to make a change. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our speakers this evening, uh, Maria Krimi-Spet and Stefan Kinsella. If you guys want to And I think it'll be important for our audience if you guys want to touch on the four main areas of intellectual property and introduce yourself and your backgrounds. We'll jump right into it after that. So I'll give it to you. Oh, yes. I get to go first. I'm Maria Spass. I'm with the local law firm, J. Bergen Wilk. And um, my areas of practice are intellectual property, which is true of both of us. And um, I, we want to start, we decided we wanted to start off to make sure that you guys know what intellectual property is and what the main four areas of intellectual property are. And they are trademarks, copyrights, trade secrets, and patents. And don't worry if you mix them up, because lots of people do, it's pretty common. Um, I'm going to tell you uh, just real briefly what a trademark is and what a, I think I'll go with copyright. Is that okay? I'll uh, do trademark and copyright and then Stefan will tell you about uh, patents and trade secrets. So trademarks are uh, your brand. Think of it as the brand. When you, and it doesn't have to be a mark despite the word mark in a trademark. A trademark is anything that identifies the source of goods or services. It gets confused sometimes with the trade name, because it can be a name, but it's anything that identifies the source of goods or services. So if I were to say to you, I'm loving it, whose tagline is that? I'm loving it. Come on, wake up. McDonald's, come on, everybody knows that one. That means that the tagline, I'm loving it, is a trademark because it identifies the source. You know it's McDonald's, or at least I think you know it's McDonald's. You guys have been pretty quiet on that one. Um, so that's all a trademark is. It's a brand, it's a source identifier. Um, and what I say was going to be copyrights. Copyrights often get confused with trademarks because there are some overlaps. Copyright is a bundle of rights that protects somebody who creates something original, that has some level of originality or artistic expression. And copyrights can be over the artistic things that we think of, like paintings and poems and songs. But they also could be over business things. So if you write a technical manual in your business, or you write some marketing material, you write materials for your website, all of those things are protected by copyright. And if you get confused between copyright and trademark, think of copyright as protecting content, copyright content. That kind of helps you keep them separate. Yes, and uh, so traditionally, I would just say as an overview, um, these rights that arose in the common law and in America were not originally called intellectual property. This is a term that's been come up with by the, the people that try to defend these laws. Originally, you have patents and copyrights, which are just are, are, are provided for in the Constitution. So the federal government has federal patent and copyright law. Patents cover inventions. If you have an invention, you can get a patent on it if you apply for one. Copyrights cover artistic uh, expressions, as Maria said. Um, now, under the rubric of intellectual property law, the four classic fields, as she mentioned, would be trade secret, trademark, copyright, and patent. 
Now, I think our main focus here today are the two big federal laws, patent and copyright, inventions, and expression. Um, trade secret is just, you actually don't need the law to have a secret, you can just keep something secret. But the trade secret law gives, third, it gives the holder of the trade secret a right to use federal courts to chase down third parties to prevent them from spilling information that's still roughly private, which is my I object to all four types of IP law. Uh, patent law does the most damage. Copyright number two, trademark number three, trade secrets is the last. And I would also add defamation law to the list of IP law. It's not normally counted as IP law by intellectual property law scholars, but the arguments for defamation law are very similar in terms of reputation rights, et cetera, to the arguments for trademark law. And I think defamation law is also uh, an, another abomination of the law. So I would abolish all five types of so-called IP law, and I actually don't like to call them intellectual property because that gives them the status that they shouldn't have. They shouldn't be considered property. But that's sort of our take on these four or five areas of law. You've got to tell them what you do for a living. Oh, I'm a patent attorney, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know of what I speak. People sometimes say, aren't you a hypocrite? I'm like, well, let's focus on the argument. <laughs> um, you would think that the patent law or copyright law are unjustified and a bad law. You, you would expect some of the practitioners to figure this out, and that's what I do. I'm like an, I'm like an oncologist who tries to cure cancer, and I want cancer to be abolished so my job won't exist anymore. That's the way I look at my career in patent law. That's a good take on it. Do you want to start with the, um, the, the nay, or you kind of already did. Do you want to give a little opening to everybody about the sure. core of why sure. you, you think these should be abolished? Sure. And then I'll do counterpoint. That sounds fine. Yeah. Okay, so I've been, I've been a libertarian for 30 plus years and a patent lawyer for 25 or something. And, you know, my main interest in libertarian theory is... Change out. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's okay. Testis? Okay. Crackle better? Yeah, better. Alright. That's a trademark. And so, uh, <laughs> it could be. Uh, it's a Gantt board. And so, uh, I, my main interest in law is legal theory and rights theory. It's not intellectual property law, but I've had been I'm doing this as a living, and I'm a libertarian theorist and writer, and people keep asking the question, and no one gets it right. And I've, I've read up on this, and so I had to figure it out on my own. And I've come to the conclusion 20 years ago, 15 years ago, that patent law and copyright law are completely unlibertarian, anti-free market. They restrict free private property rights. Uh, they empower the government. Patent law basically impedes... Hello, Tess? I guess we go back to the other. Should I just speak out? No. It's off. It's off. All right. No? Yeah, you're back. I can speak up. Switch it back. This talk has been removed by the copyright. You see? <laughs> the federal government has shut you down. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> Let's see if it works when I do it. Yeah. Technical difficulty. Yes, be cool. 
Oh, it could be a restaurant-wide problem. All right, we're gonna we're gonna shout for now. I can shout. Your voice sounds like it carries. I can carry. We can do it. I can do it. Do you want me to go first, or you can do it too? No, I'll continue. All right, we're gonna go microphoneless for a uh, for a little while. Uh, my point was the reason I'm against intellectual property is because I looked into it and I understand the legal system. I do practice it. But the more I looked into it, I tried to find a way to justify it. It's like an atheist trying to find a way to justify God, right? I did that. I'm a patent lawyer. I need to find a way to justify my career. And every argument I came across was, 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 was problematic. Um, there are empirical arguments like uh, we need IP law to incentivize people to create copyrights, inventions, works of art, etc. Um, and then the natural law arguments which are if you create something, you have the right to own it. Right? If you look closely at all these arguments, you see that they're all flawed. And what I've come to the conclusion is that patent law and copyright law are basically illegitimate government grants of monopoly that are relics and hangovers from an older system where, in the case of copyright, the government tried to regulate speech, right? With the printing press, they didn't want just anyone to be able to print any book that they could. Check one, two. <laughs> and in the case... Check one, two, one, two, check, check. Okay, we are getting rid of wireless for right. the time. That'll work. Okay, there we go. Thank you. All right. And in the case of copyright, copyright, so copyright originated with the desire of the government to basically prevent the spread of speech and the press that they didn't want. When the printing press became available, copies would be immediately possible, so the government in England put controls on what the press could do. This was the, uh, the, the stationer's company, and then eventually this resulted in the Statute of Anne of 1709, which is the origin of our modern copyright system. So we think of this as a right to an author, of an author to prevent people from copying their works, but this really originated in the desire of the church and the crown to prevent spread of ideas they didn't want spread. Inventions, the patents on inventions result, uh, came from the Statute of Monopolies in England in 1623, which is a result of the Parliament to crack down on the monarch's practice of granting uh, statutory privileges to certain court cronies to give them uh, protection from competition. Um, and in the Statute of Monopolies, there was an exception made for inventions by innovators. So they cracked down on the Crown's ability to grant these letters patent, which protected people from competition, but they left in place this little kernel which said, if you have an invention that's unique and new, you can get a patent on that. So the United States Constitution has this clause which enables the Congress to enact patent and copyright law based upon, ultimately, the Statute of Anne and the Statute of Monopolies in 23 and 1710. Now, trademark law actually is not provided for in the Constitution, nor is trade secret law. So when the Congress legislates on that, they've done so under the Interstate Commerce Clause, which is why we have a federal trademark act called the Lanham Act, which is only applicable when there's interstate commerce, and states still have the little mini trademark laws. So the whole system is a mess. 
But in my view, the patent system does the worst damage to the world because it slows down innovation. Innovation is how we progress as a human race and human society. We build up knowledge over the generations that we can dip into and use to enhance productivity. And anything that threatens that is a threat to the human race and literally kills people. Copyright, on the other hand, lasts longer and is more insidious and has distorted culture. Um, and it also has threatened freedom on the internet. And because the internet is one of the greatest tools we have to fight the state, uh, copyright is also extremely dangerous. Although, if I had to, if I could just abolish one law, I would abolish patent law first. So that's my basic take on the IP law. First, let me agree with something. If you have to abolish one of them, abolish patents. I, I, I would agree with that. that. That's a tougher argument for me, the patent one. I want to um, address what you said, Stefan, about copyrights being used to quelch free speech. The uh, preamble to the copyright statute specifically says it cannot be used for that purpose and should not be used for that purpose. And I have litigated that issue successfully where somebody attempted to use copyrights to stop somebody from speaking up and they were shut down by the courts as well they should have been. So I think in practice, I don't think that it in any way um, uh, harms people's freedom of speech, although that may have been its early roots. I think the, the best way that I would want to start to, to, with the argument that intellectual property is indeed property and is property that should be protected is to look at it from the perspective of um, what is more important and what is more valuable than my time and my skills. And Stefan wrote a brilliant article about this, and in the article he pointed out that Property is about scarcity, right? If you've got an abundance of something, then you don't have property rights. But if you don't have an abundance, then that's where property rights come in. And I don't know what could be more scarce than my time. So I, I'm going to cheat just on this one little thing with something I wrote up because I don't remember numbers and I did some calculations. But I, I've got a, a, a mythical or fictional author here, and um, we'll call her, we'll be clever and call her Jane Ryder. And she, she's spent a thousand hours writing a fiction novel. And she decides to self-publish it. She hires an editor, she hires a proofreader, she hires an illustrator. Um, and she spends a thousand hours working on it. So if she wants to earn $20 per hour um, for her thousand hours, she needs to make $20,000, right? This is why I need my notes, because I don't want to have to do the math. That's why I went to law school. Um, so, so she spent $5,000 in editing and proofreading and on an illustrator. The book costs $2 to print, and it sells for $12, so she makes $10 a book, right? The first 500 books get out of her, uh, get her, get her out-of-pocket costs back, so she ends up um, now even. She still needs to sell 1,000 more books to earn her $20 per hour. And if she wants to earn more, she needs to, she needs to sell more books. Um, now, let's eliminate copyright protection. Right? Let's, let's take it away, let's abolish it. Now, Jane, um, goes through that same exercise, except she just saved $2,500 because she didn't have to hire the illustrator. She just took somebody else's work, right? So she saved some money there. And now, um, she only has to sell 250 books at net $10 to make her cost back. She still needs to sell 2,000 uh, books at net $10 to be compensated for her time. She sells her first five books, and then um, Bob comes along, um, and Bob says, oh, let me grab one of those books, let me take it to the printer, 
and let's have the printer print it for me. And the printer charges him $2 a book. He sells that at a 50% markup, so he sells it for $3 a book. Remember, James trying to sell them for 12 bucks a book. He's selling them for three bucks a book. So anytime a consumer wants a book, they'll buy it from Bob at three instead of you know, buying it from Jane at 12. Um, and of course, it's a free market, as well it should be. So Jane says, I needed to compete in this marketplace. So she needs to drop her price to $3. So now she needs to sell 2,500 books just to pay back her out-of-pocket costs. And she needs to sell 20,000 books at a dollar each to earn $20 per hour. And she's competing with Bob, who has no labor into it. So I have a really hard time with the argument that copyrights are not property rights. Jane spent a thousand hours of her time creating this work, and all of that time is for naught because you can just simply take it to the printer and print it. Um, and, and Jane doesn't have to be an author; she can be an inventor, and she could have spent a thousand hours making an invention. So. In my mind, it's very much a property right, and, it's, and it very much needs to be protected by the law. And you know, don't get me wrong; the less law is, the better. I'm with you guys on that. But I think this one, this law, is is important. One more thing: it's not. I wouldn't be opposed to removing criminal penalties for copyright protection, um, but I am opposed to removing the civil ability to, to pursue somebody for it. So I, I do want to point that out. So I think I think Jane has a right to say to Bob, no, you don't get to take my thousand hours of work and take it to the printer and print it. So with that, we'll jump into our questions. Um, so first one, and either of you can weigh in on this, is copyright law compatible with the First Amendment? I'll start. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, so you don't have to be an anarchist to be opposed to IP law, but it helps. <laughs> you don't have to be a libertarian to be opposed to IP law, but it helps. Um, if you simply believe in human prosperity and a sensible set of laws based upon the private law, that's really all you need. Um, in the case of the U.S., um, so the Constitution, think about this, was ratified in 1789. Well, it was completed in 1787, ratified in 1789. Everyone remember this? 1791, two years later, the Bill of Rights was enacted, the first 10 Bill of Rights. Now, the way that laws or statutes are interpreted and constitutional amendments and pro provisions when you have a conflict among these provisions, the later statute determines, right? This is why we don't have alcohol prohibited in the U.S. now, because it was prohibited at one point, but then a later amendment to the Constitution undid that amendment, partly. So later in time takes precedence if there's a conflict. Now, the Supreme Court has recognized many times that there is, in fact, a conflict between freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which is in the First Amendment, which was enacted in 1791, part of the Bill of Rights, and the Copyright Act, which is authorized by the Constitution in 1789. So the, Constitution, the Supreme Court has recognized that there is a conflict, and the conflict is this. Under copyright law, and you say you don't think of an example, etc., but I can find you many examples. I got tired of collecting them in my horror files blog posts, which I kept updating, but 
the there was a sequel, for example, to the novel uh, Catcher in the Rye by J.B. Salinger. After his death, his heirs sued in court because someone wrote a sequel, kind of a parody type sequel, whatever. But it was a sequel, and they got an injunction from the court not to publish the book. Now that is book banning. That is literally the force of the government saying you can't publish this book. Uh, copies of the movie Nosferatu, the black and white vampire movie, were banned by the heirs of the estate of Bram Stoker because it was too similar to, Dra to Dracula. Um, these are just some small examples. Uh, uh, Aaron Schwartz, the creator of, uh, of uh, the protocol behind podcasting, committed suicide because he was going to go to federal prison for decades for uploading some scholarly papers, papers in violation of copyright law. The, the human devastation done in the name of copyright is immense. And yes, I'm glad you would get rid of criminal law, but we should also get rid of statutory damages and have only real damages. Let's go civil and let's go only real damages. Statutory damages of $75,000, $25,000 per infringing work is just ridiculous. Every one of us right now, probably more than the average citizen, but just the average citizen, just from what they do on a daily basis, we are theoretically liable for about $4.5 billion a year in damages from copyright infringement alone, just from copying pictures, forwarding emails, things that everyone does. If this system was taken seriously, it would snuff out the human race. I mean, this is not a joke. It's horrible. Um, so the copyright system is completely evil and serves no function whatsoever. It's like the drug war is the most obviously unlibertarian and, and immoral thing the government does. It's probably the number one thing, because there's just no argument for the drug war. But you could say that it, it might dissuade some people from doing drugs in some cases. So maybe there's one slight benefit. But there is no benefit to the copyright or patent whatsoever. It's up there with the war, the drug war, central banking and the Fed, government schooling and taxation. They're all evil, but patent and copyright law are up there with the top two or three, in my view. as bad as the drug war, and I certainly don't think copyrights are. But um, so, so the question was, does copyright abridge um, free speech? Is it, is it inconsistent with the First Amendment? And I don't think it is because it doesn't, copyright law doesn't prevent your right to speak your expression. It just prevents your right to steal my speech. It doesn't stop you from speaking uh, on your own. Now, I agree with you, um, Stefan, that there's been some cases that are just absurd. And so we can always take the worst case scenario and say, look at this example, and because of that, we shouldn't have the, you know, the entire system. And, and I've seen some copyright cases that I've shook my head and said, really, are you kidding me? Concepts are not covered. The statute is very clear. Copyright protects the expression of the idea, not the underlying idea, and not the underlying concept. So you should not be able to snuff out entire books just because they have a similar concept to another to another case. And I and I litigate these cases, and I am thrilled to get to defend somebody in you know in a case where they're being accused of infringing a copyright just because they took a concept. You have to take the expression. It's not enough to take the concept. 
Also, there's fair use. So I, I, I would have to completely and utterly disagree with the idea that we're all committing copyright infringement and the, to the tune of, what was it, 4.5 billion, billion dollars a year. You're, I think to have a statistic like that or a number like that, you have to be ignoring fair use. Um, you know, when we, when we recopy and repost things on Facebook, they are almost always fair use. It's when you're using it in a commercial context or you're using it in a way that you are depriving the owner of their rights and their ability to sell the work that it's not fair use. So the fair use exception is actually, you know, pretty robust. It's also not as black and white as it should be. So I, I think one of the problems, I, I'm making your argument for you here, one of the problems with the system is we don't have enough clear-cut lines between what is and what isn't infringement, and we don't have enough clear-cut lines between what is and what is not fair use. And that's not good, because when we're not sure, you may deter conduct that you shouldn't be deterring. So I am all for um, cleaning up that mess, and I, and I don't disagree that there are some, some, there's some messiness in the system. Um, in any court battle, Especially in the Ninth Circuit, where they're you know they just do really bizarre things sometimes in our in our circuit, um, you'll get decisions that most of us lawyers shake our heads at. So we can point to those and we can say we should do away with the entire system, but I, I don't think that we should. And I think what we need to do is you know get rid of some of the you know, wacky, crazy judges that we have out there. Um, but again, freedom of expression is not hurt if you just simply cannot use my words. You can, you can take that concept and you can speak out against the government, you can do whatever, you know, whatever your free speech is, assuming that you don't violate some other rule, um, as long as you're not using the exact words that I use. Well, thank you both. Uh, next question is, would eliminating patent and copyright laws stifle innovation or promote it? I actually think this is the hardest question for me, right? Um, I, I, I don't completely disagree with the argument that sometimes patent protection stifles innovation. Um, but let's talk about what it's supposed to do and let's be idealistic for a minute. Um, I certainly think that copyright protection does not cycle innovation and promotes innovation for exactly the reason that I gave in my opening example. I'm not going to spend the time to write the song, write the music, write the book, uh, write the technical manual. I'm not going to spend the time to do that when I can just go steal it from somebody else. So I, I definitely think copyright does not stifle innovation. I think it's a much more difficult issue with respect to patents because patents are intended to promote innovation. The idea is that you give somebody a 20-year monopoly so that they can feel like they can put that research and development into the product, they can create the product, and they know that somebody's not just going to immediately rip it off. And in theory, that works. And I, I agree that sometimes it doesn't. Um, one of the arguments that I've heard is that the large corporations use the patent system to keep down small inventors. And I think that unfortunately can be true. But the flip side of that is if you are a small inventor and you want to spend the time to make an invention that is truly unusual and is novel and non-obvious and is patentable, you have the protection to stop the big corporation who's got all the money and all the tooling and all the background to simply take it from you. Now, the counterpoint to that is, yeah, but you don't have 
the money to fight the big corporations. So the big corporation state takes your invention and you're pretty much stuck. So one of the messages that I wanted to make sure I got out there tonight, being a litigator in this field, in this town, if you are an inventor and you have an invention and your patent is solid and valid and the infringement is clear, do not let money stop you. I will tell you, I know lots of attorneys that will take that case on a contingency basis and I know lots of firms that will fund those litigations if they are good. So I, lots of people say to me, I'm not going to bother getting a patent because it's not worth fighting about. It's not worth fighting about if it's a so-so patent and if it's a so-so infringement. But if you've got everything lined up, it is absolutely worth fighting about. And I know lots of attorneys that will go to the mat for you on that without you having to spend them the out of pocket. Um, but given that, I'm not going to disagree when you say that there's lots of abuses of the system and sometimes it does stifle innovation. Uh, on the previous issue of the copyright, uh, look at my website, c4sif.org. I have a, a, a blog post with a study by a law professor, John Tehranian, I think it's called We Are All Copyright Criminals, and he takes into account the, the fair use exception, and he concludes that theoretically, on average, the average Westerner in America is $4.5 billion. It seems absurd, and it's absurd because there are statutory damages for every copy, every act of copyright infringement. Um, so just take a look at it. I mean, he maybe he's underestimating. Maybe it's even higher. Um, the patent system causes untold damage to the world. Uh, so, for example, my view is not that the problem is abuse of the system. The abuse of the system is the least problem with copyright and patent. Um, if you could eliminate the abuse, you would still have the core problem that the idea is that someone who owns a pattern of knowledge, whether it's in an invention for patents or a artistic work in the case of copyright, they have the right to control that, that pattern. Um, so uh, to my mind, when the government steps in to fix a problem with the free market, right? So here's the problem they see. This is all Chicago-type tweaking mentality. We have a free market, and it's okay to have a free market. Thank God they're not total socialists, um, like Sanders or yeah. Warren or whatever. <laughs> no, they want some free market, but they want to tame it with the government, right? So they focus like the Chicago school does on, on market failure. So here's the market failure. In a unbridled, or when, I, when I hear the word unbridled, I think it's a good thing. Unbridled free market apparently for these guys is a bad thing. When you have an unbridled free market, I don't want to be bridled, right? Just leave me the hell alone. But when you have a free market, the idea is that there's going to be an underproduction of innovative goods because of this problem that Maria's talking about. Because that if you're thinking as an entrepreneur, how do I make money off of my poetry collection, right? How do I how do I make money off my invention and keep the big companies from so-called ripping me off, which is a never-loaded term. It means stealing, which implies property, which is the question on debate, right? So the entrepreneur has a, tr a tough time figuring out how do I make a profit in this business. Just like the guy that starts Domino's Pizza has a tough time thinking, I'm going to start a pizza delivery service or a fast food rent franchise called McDonald's or, or Sam's Club or whatever. They have to think, how do I make a profit now and in the future? If it's successful, people will be 
They'll compete with me. They'll do what I'm doing, and it's going to be harder to make a profit. This is the problem entrepreneurs face all the time. The job of the law is to just protect property rights and have a field where people can compete in and do what they want to do. It's up to them to figure out what business model will work. You know, if you can't make money selling poetry, maybe it's because people don't want to buy poetry. Um, in today's world, in today's world, piracy of copyrighted works is widespread. We all know this. Movies, music, video games, you can easily find this stuff for next to nothing. And yet, producers of this content still find ways to produce it. Maybe they don't do it for profit, maybe they do it for other reasons. But the point is, we haven't seen a diminution of creative output in this age and era. Scientific, technological, or artistic. Um, so the idea that we need these laws is ridiculous. So the argument is, the government sees a problem. We see an optimal amount of creative and inventive output, and it's lower than it should be because the free market has a failure. So we're gonna come in like the white knights and we're gonna give people little monopolies. In the case of patents, it lasts about 17 years. In the case of copyright, nowadays, it lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years, okay? So any author you like now, when they finally die in 10 years, then by the end of 2100 century, their work will finally be public domain. I mean, the whole thing is re-fucking-diculous. <laughs> um, these numbers are obviously arbitrary. Anyone who thinks there's a natural right to copyright a patent has to justify why patents last 17 years and copyrights last about 100. There's no reason. If I own this watch, if I find it in 50 years, someone stole it, I can get it back. because. The ownership lasts forever. Same thing with land. Real rights, natural rights, last forever. The fact that patent and copyright expire after a time shows that the creators know that these things hurt society, and they're, they're, they're a temporary measure to satisfy certain special interest groups. They're totally contrary to the free market. The patent should be totally abolished. Um, people should be able to compete. There's nothing wrong with learning from people, emulating them, copying from them and competing with them on a free market and if you do not invade the borders the physical borders of someone's property by a violation of contract rights or some type of trespass or some type of tort there's no violation and in ip law when you copy what someone does there is no infringement of their property rights and therefore it should not be a crime at all before you go to the next question, I have just a, just a, a can't resist the fun story. The 70 years is not arbitrary at all. So the author's life plus 70 years used to be the author's life plus 50 years. It got in, I'm making I'm making Stefan's argument for him. It got increased to 70 years because Mickey Mouse was about to go into the public domain, and um, and Disney uh, lobbied Congress to increase the the term so that. It wouldn't go into the public domain. I don't just I don't disagree that the seventy years is a little absurd. <laughs> and let me add one one color to that. In the beginning of the country, when the patent law and copyright law were first done, the term was about fourteen years for both. Copyright could be renewed one time. The idea was this: if you have an apprentice, the apprentice terms are usually fourteen right. years. Right. So the idea was that if you teach your apprentice all your skills, you need protection from him leaving and becoming a competitor to you. So if you, get, if you have two apprentice terms, 14 times two, that's enough protection from your competition. So the whole thing is always anti-competitive.
Thank you both. Our next question is, copyright protects original expression, but is there really any original expression? All right, I'll start. Um, so I think this argument is a little bit of a red herring. Um, the argument against copyright and patent is not that no one is really an original creator. You could make that argument to an extent because all the great thinkers have always admitted that they stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Everyone admits that. No one, excuse me, no one creates or invents in a vacuum. We all build upon the society we're immersed in, the knowledge that we've learned. So in a sense, all creation, especially technical innovation, is always incremental. Now the patent system explicitly recognizes this because it allows for patents for what they call improvements. In fact, every invention is an improvement in a sense on what's gone before. So the fact that you're not completely original is not a barrier to the theory of IP. Um, in, the fact, in, 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 the, in the creative fields, everyone is influenced by previous artists Sometimes people are accused of plagiarism even when they did it unintentionally because we can't help being influenced by previous creators. So the fact that not everyone is a totally original creator ab initio to me is not a good criticism of the patent copyright system. Because even if you are an original creator, even if you somehow came up with a work out of your head that no one could ever understand, which is a lot of the people I talk to on the internet forums, um, the libertarian forums, um, you still wouldn't be entitled, in my view, to have a monopoly over that idea. The problem is theoretical and fundamental. It's not this kind of nitpicky criticism. So yes, yes, most people that hold copyright and patents are, you could say they're hypocrites in a way because they benefit from the work of previous untold and unsung creators they're building on, and then they're getting a monopoly on their little incremental contribution, which they milk for 17 or 100 years. But that's not a problem with patent copyright. I, I agree with most of that. I, I would just also add that with respect to a patent, when you get that 17-year monopoly, what you're, and now 20 years, right, from publication, is that right? What you're giving up in, in exchange for it is, is you're giving up full disclosure of your invention to the extent that somebody skilled in the field can practice it. So the idea is that if you're teaching others to indeed take up your work and improve on your work. And, and so, so getting back to it cycling or not cycling innovation, that's the way that it would help innovation. And um, and if it's not an original idea, original invention, it won't, at least again, theoretically, won't get patent protection. And um, I think it's, in the copyright world, it's a little harder because uh, there are no, you know, brand, well, sometimes it's brand new words, but for the most part, we're building on things that are already there and adding enough artistic expression to it or originality to make it, um, in and of itself, copyright protected. Um, so I think we're pretty much on the same page on that one. I think you know, there's it, you're, you're, the, the whole idea of intellectual property protection, if, if it were to be protected, would be to build on other people's um, ideas and, and expressions. I'll hold on to this, I guess. Is there another one or another question? Or no? I've got one more. Okay. Oh, you need it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're done. 
So final question, and then I'd love to hear everyone else's questions in the audience. Um, how can we objectively determine what the optimal patent copyright terms should be, and what should they be? That was my question, so do you want to take it first, or do you want me to go first? Uh, no, I don't like it. I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, so I'm not sure what they should be, and I don't. I don't think it's my place to you know to argue what it should be. I, I do think the patent term needs to be shortened only because technology today changes so quickly. So I think the idea of the patent term was this is you know this is how long you get to keep it yourself and you get to. Um, uh, exploit it before somebody else can, can do it and then it's part of the public domain. Um, I think that could be shorter now with, with all the technology. And I certainly think that the copyright statutes are way too long. I mean, those, those got to be commercialized, those got to be, you know, capitalistic and, and you know, cronyism and let's, let's lobby Congress. And so that's, you know, certainly a problem. I don't know what they should be, but I'm, I'm with you that they're, that they are, number one, they are arbitrary and they are probably too long. Uh, but certainly not with you on eliminating them all altogether. Alright. Well, luckily I know the answer. <laughs> of course you do. The answer is zero. <laughs> um, so, the assumption behind this, I have a blog post on my site about uh, Alex Tabaraku. He did a back of the envelope calculation, and he models the patent, see the optimal copyright term or the optimal patent terms of like a bell curve. It starts at zero and then there's a maximum goes down. And he says we're on the wrong side of it. In other words, he's like all the other moderate incrementalist tinkerers who want to fix a quote, broken system. I mean, to me this is like saying uh, an innocent guy in prison because he sold marijuana should have a nicer bed sheet. That's not the issue. He shouldn't be in prison in the first place. He shouldn't be illegal. The drug war is completely immoral. Slavery is completely immoral, which is what the drug war is. And by the way, patent and copyright are types of slavery, which is the problem with them. It gives other people the right to own your heads and own your, your life and tell you what you can't do. Um, so the, and the answer is zero. Now, I would just put it this way. Think about it like this. If you don't know this issue, you're confused about it, Think about the burden, who is the burden of proof on, and what is their burden of proof? The Constitution says that we, Congress can enact patent and copyright laws to protect inventions and creative expression to promote the progress of the arts and science. Okay, it's not clear that that's a limitation on their power, but that's at least the, the argument in favor of them. Now, in 1790, there were no empirical studies showing the benefit of these laws or the cost. But over time, the cost has gone higher and higher and higher, especially since the advent of the digital internet era, where copyright has become uh, a noose on the neck of lots of people. Lots of people. Um, I would say the burden of proof should be on anyone who advocates any copyrighted patent term whatsoever. They need to show that, number one, there's a benefit of this law that is a certain dollar amount. Number two, they need to identify the cost of the law and show that that cost is lower than the benefit and tell us what the net difference is. And if they can do that, now you would think that in the last 230 years, 
Someone would have done that. No one's ever been able to. They started trying in earnest in the, in the 1950s, 60s with economists, econometrics and studies, and every economist who looks at this issue, even the ones that are mainstream and not a crazy radical like me, they kind of scratch their heads and say, oh, I don't know, we can't tell. We can't tell. So you have this horrible law that hampers the prima facie on its face, hampers free speech, private property rights, employs people like me and Maria, who could be doing something productive for a living instead. Oh. <laughs> and so there's obviously a cost to society. The patent system reduces innovation and hampers the human race. The copyright system impairs internet freedom and distorts the culture and restricts freedom of speech and freedom of the press. There is nothing good about these laws. And there is no evidence that they do anything good whatsoever. No one has produced any. All the studies are completely bogus. If you just look up on it, I've written on this on my website. So I would say the burden of proof is on anyone who advocates for an intrusion into the private law, the common law system, our private property rights. Anyone who advocates for these federal laws, which are statutory federal laws, and statutes are, like, like I said, you don't have to be anti-statute to be anti-IP, but it helps. You don't have to be a libertarian, but it helps. I'm against statutes, I'm against legislation, I'm against the government, I'm against the state, I'm for Austrian economics and human liberty and private property rights, and that's why I'm against IP. Uh, I didn't already answer this question. Yeah, I did. Um, I, well, I want to really quickly say something about statutory damages, because you mentioned statutory damages a couple of times. Again, as a practical matter, as a litigator in this field, I have never once, and I've taken several of these cases to trial, I've never once had statutory damages be higher than actual damages. So the idea that people are getting hit with these $150,000 statutory damage awards for you know stealing a picture on the internet, it's not happening. Juries are not, well, I started to say juries are not dumb, except I've had my experiences with dumb juries. But for the most part, juries say, you know what, if your actual damages are $500, I'm not going to give you $150,000 in statutory damages, and it is the jury's decision now. I'm going to make the statutory damages commensurate with the actual damages, and that's what ha has happened in every single case that I have had. So it's it's just not happening the way, frankly, you make it sound like you know there's all these statutory damages that people are getting hit with. That's just that's not what's that's not what's going on out there. So I think we're ready for questions from the audience. Yeah. Yep. Well, you guys want to yell from your seat, Carlos? Yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here, taking time and doing the research. Um, I had a question for Stefan. I can totally see the point when it comes to medicine specifically. Somebody takes the research, puts out a medicine that could potentially save the lives of a ton of people. And we're not allowing a generic to come out because of some law. I think that we're morally we should ask a question, are we doing the right thing? However, um, I do see a book here on Amazon against, oh, for you, Stefan Kinsella against intellectual property for $5.50. Are you telling me that if I go and get this book and I copy it and I put it together and I put it on there and it says just by Carlos, you wouldn't have a problem with me making money off of this exact work? That's that might be basic question. Thank you. I mean, it's not essential to my argument, but no, I wouldn't. 
you wouldn't have a problem. No. Okay. I give you license to do whatever you want. I have CC0. I have CC0 on all of my copyrighted works except for some legal publications. CC0 means I don't even demand attribution. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. I think that's super consistent. Thank you. Yeah. But, but. That's irrelevant to my argument because even if I'm a hypocrite, it doesn't mean my arguments are wrong, right? So it's totally irrelevant. Um, and merely selling a book, five dollars—I'm not—that's probably Mises is to selling it. Um, selling a book for even for profit doesn't mean that you're relying on copyright. You're just selling a book. You don't need permission to do that. I don't need to stop other people from doing it. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna copy a book on IP? <laughs> <laughs> Only the people in this room would want to. Guys, I'm starting a business. <laughs> yeah, I get this thing all the time. Like, well, what if I make a million dollars selling your book? I'm like, good for you. Good it's like, I mean, if you can make a million dollars selling a book on Austrian political theory. That's impressive. <laughs> but I think you'd want your name associated with it because that'd be an impressive project. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm sort of in between your two worlds, right? Um, I am sort of conservatarian. I see the arguments on both sides. And the thing that's really nagged at me is, okay, you abolish IP. How do you, well, let me, let me, let me start from the beginning. All right, you've, you've got us, you look to the past and say, people innovated in the past, and we didn't have IP protections, therefore people innovate in the future. But as a libertarian, Stefan, uh, you want to realize the past is a very status place, right? Where the government promoted innovation for its own ends, all right? Now we live in a free market society where we don't have that same level of government-promoted innovation going on. How do you still ensure that capital-intensive uh, degrees of innovation get a rate of return that promotes that in the future? Well... Um, so my approach to law is completely different than the presuppositions of your question. I don't think the purpose of law is to have a bunch of people in a committee sit down in a room and say, let's look around society and figure out how we can ensure that there's going to be a guaranteed rate of return in A, B, and C industries or segments or whatever. The purpose of law is justice. The reason we have law is because we live in a world of, of rivalrous or scarcity. And there's a possibility of conflict among us human actors over some of these resources. Because there's a possibility of conflict, and because we live among each other and we get benefits from living in society, right? We get the division and specialization of labor, we get to have intercourse with other humans, etc. Right? But the, the danger is that other human actors can want to use the same resource we're using. So the purpose of law is simply to establish rules of, of ownership when there's a, a conflictable or a rivalrous resource that people can have a conflict over. It's simply to answer the question, who gets the right to use that resource? That's the purpose of law. That's what justice is. Justice means giving someone their due. Giving someone their due means you have to know what their rights are. 
Rights are always property rights, as Rob Hart explains. Right? Property rights are important because we have physical needs in the world and we use scarce means. All this comes together. So the whole purpose of law is to do justice, to do the right thing, to recognize when there's a dispute over a resource, who owns it, and to answer that question, and then everyone goes their own way, and they can live harmoniously and have prosperity. It's never, the question is never, how do we incentivize people to write a Harry Potter novel? That's not the question of law. The question of law is, how do we do justice and do the right thing? Once we establish this, this base, meta-norm, grin-norm playing field, people are secure in their property rights, they can make their own damn decisions about how to make a profit on doing things. If you can't make a profit writing poetry, maybe it's your hobby, right? If you, if you have trouble selling your innovation, maybe you do it in a different way. You bundle it with your reputation, whatever. But that's not the task of political theory and political ethics, to tell, tell people how to make a profit. So I guess, in a sense, my answer is I don't care, and it's not the job of the law to make sure some industry that you think of in your head as normal is going to be profitable. That's up to the people to figure it out, given a, a, a landscape where the rights are protected. I think the argument you make as to why there should be laws is exactly why there should be intellectual property law. I mean, I, I think you can't pretend like intellectual property is not property. And not just because that's its, that's its name, because it behaves just like property. I created it, I spent my labor creating it, and why wouldn't that be property? And your argument is because it's not scarce. Your argument is because if you use it, you're not taking it from me. So if I have a car, and you come into my garage every night while I'm sleeping, and you take my car out for a spin, is that okay? It's my car, it's my property. I'm not using it right now, but you can't just take it for a spin because you want to. So I, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not following your distinction between tangible property and intangible property, and therefore the intangible is not property. Because I think what you just described as the reason for law is exactly right. Um, I just, where we disagree is, is, is whether it's property. And I think we need to probably stop fighting about this and get a bunch of other questions, but I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. Hi, my name is Alice. I have a clarification followed by a question. So I read your blog, uh, that's why I'm on my phone, and you state that you don't actually own your IP when it comes to Bitcoin. However, you do own your IP on blockchain technology and applications that supports Bitcoin. There's a company that I just spoke to yesterday that got, that got um, a patent granted on their blockchain application. So that's just a clarification on that point. Uh, my question is that um, IP was created pre-digital age, so given that, um, today companies trade IP assets without always updating ownership status, making it hard for even well-known intentional companies to legitimately license others' IP. How do you go about creating that management system that is global and inclusive at the same time? Um, I don't recall, I'm not sure what blog post you mean, because I don't, uh, the Bitcoin argument is a spin-off of this argument. Uh, I simply argued that I don't think Bitcoins are ownable things because they are informational entities that always reside on an underlying storage medium. In other words, the blockchain is, there's many copies of it which are stored upon 
uh, private servers and computers around the world, and every owner of that computer owns that physical resource, and the information on it can't be owned in addition, it would be double counting. So I don't actually think, and I think patents in the Bitcoin space are an abomination. That's why I had a debate with Craig Wright, the alleged Satoshi, in London about a year and a half ago about this issue in part. Um, so I don't, I, don't, I don't agree that Bitcoin, any part of it can be owned in the practical ownership sense because it's just information. Um, I forgot the second part of your question, sorry. Um, the second part, so the, the actual question is that when companies trade IP assets without no. always updating ownership status, it makes it hard for even well-intentioned companies to legitimately license others' IP. So on the global stakes. Um, I think this is, maybe you'd agree with me, less of a problem in the patent space because for patents you have to actively apply for a patent and register the ownership in terms of assignments. So it's pretty easy to, to find out who the owner of a patentable invention is uh, within limits. Copyright, ever since the 80s when the U.S. unfortunately joined the Berne Convention, eliminated what's called um, formalities. This is why everyone's confused now and they always say, oh, did you copyright that? They think it's a verb. They think it's an active process. They think it's putting a, a, a copyright mark on your work or saying something like copyright in 1999. It's not, uh, nowadays copyright is automatic. This is the biggest problem with copyright, in my view, is that it's automatic. Um, and not only is it automatic in the sense that you get it whether you want it or not, it's almost impossible to get rid of it. So I used to argue that copyright used to be like a patent system. It was called opt-in. You had to opt-in. You had to actively register. And then there could be a federal database or something where you could at least find who owns this work, who you need to get permission from if you want to make a copy of you know, uh, some dead guy's book. But ever since the 80s, when we have the burn convention and the non-formalities thing, as soon as you write it down on a piece of paper, you have a copyright in it. It's automatic. The problem with that is there's no clear record of that because most people don't. You don't have to register your copyright now. You don't have to say copyright. You don't have to put a date on it. It makes it very difficult to know who owns the copyright. And it make, that makes it difficult to get permission to publish something that's dead which is why we have this orphan works problem. The orphan works problem is you don't know who to contact, the works are orphaned, they're just sitting off there in space. No legitimate publisher is going to publish it because they're afraid of liability from someone waking up from the dead and saying, oh, you violated my uncle's or my grandpa's copyright. So you have this, if you, you can look at, there's a chart on my website, it's the orphan works problem. There's, you can see until about 1910, there's all these works and it goes down into a trough for about 50 years. There have been literally millions of works that may have been lost forever because no one knew who had the right to publish it. Um, so if we could return to an opt-in system in copyright, or at least have an opt-out where you could just put your name on a, on a ledger saying, I don't want anything to do with copyright, all my work is free. You can't even do that now. The Creative Commons system is dodgy. Um, that would improve things. But as it is right now, now the United States has insisted that everyone be bound by this treaty. So even if the United States Congress wanted to reduce copyright law back to the 1980 style, 
they would they couldn't do it because they would say we're violating international law because we're in breach of the Berne Convention, a treaty. So they, they basically hamstrung themselves in the 80s on purpose to make it impossible to ever improve copyright law. The whole thing's an abomination. Thank God for torrenting and encryption and the internet. <laughs> I don't think that question was for me. Yeah. Uh, for this last question, let's limit our responses to about two minutes. Okay. And then we'll wrap up in a minute. Thank you. Uh, I'll try to be terse. Um, so uh, I think that everybody can agree that writing is a pain in the ass. Um, uh, and um, now the distinction is that I work in the film industry. You know, I've always spent probably 10,000 hours working on my little script, doing research for it. And I couldn't help but think about the film Black Stallion, which, uh, in which the studio was actually sued because the author submitted his script and they just stole it. They just took it. <laughs> I mean, it looked suspiciously familiar to the point that uh, uh, that he filed suit, uh, the author filed suit, and he won a fight with the studios. So, I mean, even if you're against IP philosophically, isn't there some point where you're throwing the baby out of the bathwater? <laughs> You know, where you know, you're telling people that they have no recourse. You know, it's it's hard, you know, but anyway, I, I think I can stop there. I can let you talk. Um it's okay to throw the baby out with the bathwater if it's Rosemary's baby. <laughs> and now in in a world where there was no copyright law, people would unsurprisingly not be unaware of this. They would know that. Um, so if you submit your script to a, a studio and you don't have a contract, then you're basically telling someone your secret. And if they copy it, shame on you. Or maybe they develop a bad reputation. The purpose of law, again, is to do justice. It's not to make sure people can make movies. So I would say that we're for liberty. We're for private property rights. We're for a free market. People can do whatever they want within that framework. But the purpose of law is not to make sure that, that some starving screenwriter can make a profit. That's their job. It's not my job. I'm going to use the word liberty because I meant to use that earlier. right? So I've got, a, I've got a right to liberty. How are you not taking my liberty away if you are taking all of my work product and you are exploiting it without my permission? How is that not impinging on my liberty as a creator? So that's what I really have a hard time with, is, is you are enslaving me if I'm going to take all this, I'm going to take the, the 10,000 hours to write the film, and the big film company is going to come along and, and put it out there. And, and with zero recourse, um, I think that's a serious liberty violation. This is the big problem that libertarians don't get. They think property is inviolate and... Libertarians somehow think property is only based on scarcity. That's inaccurate. Intellectual property is property. If you write a song or a book, you know it's yours. It simply is. And when you write one, you'll know it. People who've never written one don't quite grok. But when you do it, you know it. 
And if somebody steals it, and that's the right word, you've been robbed. And what he described is robbery, theft. If you put your name on it, it's fraud. It costs you a lot of money. And whether you defend it using the government or your own gun, you defend the theft of your property. And the scarcity argument is phony. The fact that you can make a million copies of my book because we're cutting down the trees as fast as we can, the scarcity is not the issue. It is property, you own it, and how long you own it for, I think I own my book forever. And I can will it to my family. And they own it forever like any other property. And the ownership of property is not based on its origin, it's based on force. You own what you own because you can keep it. And as soon as somebody takes it from you, you lose it. And if you can regain it by force, then you get it back. But that's where property ownership comes from, and it's a discussion for another day.